You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Incredibly, it turns out that Russia does have some friends left. France's military is given notice to quit by Burkina Faso, and what very definitely isn't on your bucket list. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rachel Cunliffe and Depo Falloyan will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll hear from someone who once tried to export the Muppets to Russia. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor at The New Statesman, and by the journalist Depo Fallojian, also the author of Africa is Not a Country. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Uh, uh, very well. Thank you. For, I think you're the first guest that's ever troubled to ask me how I'm doing. That's just how I roll. Wow. What a lovely moment. That's only taken 10 years. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you. And on your first show as well, uh, your first time on The Daily, at least, um, Given that, uh, it would seem only fitting that we allow you a few seconds to lavishly plug your book, Africa is Not a Country. Yes, well, Africa is Not a Country is a portrait of modern Africa that pushes back against harmful stereotypes that tell a more comprehensive story Mm -hmm. of the past and present and future of the continents. For a lot of people, when they think about Africa, they only think about poverty and safari and nothing much uh, else apart from that. So the book hopefully paints a far broader picture of that. Do I glean from the title that your contention is that this vast continent of dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnic groups, millions of languages and hundreds of millions of people does not actually necessarily think with one mind about literally every subject. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, there, it's, it's, it's an astonishing there's proposition. There's an unbelievable amount of diversity in this one place and, and you know, it feels like I'm, I'm presenting some kind of strange magic trick. Um, but no, it, it really is is a, a wonderfully diverse region that, you know, I would certainly love for people to have a far better knowledge of. Uh, And Rachel, I believe you have a story coming up in The New Statesman, which is very, very much germane to an item we will be getting to later in the show. I do. It's on Tory Slees. Not very much of that about, is there? (laughs) That almost, it almost seems like a throwback to the 90s. I'm old enough to remember Tory Slees 1.0. I don't know which point oh we're up to now. Too many to count, but I think it's it's a very similar thing happening, which is that when you get governments that are exhausted and people are exhausted and there are too many people who have been in too many versions of that government and resigned for all kinds of reasons, these things just come out and come out and there is no stopping the snowball effect. And I, I feel like that's where we are. The integrity that was promised doesn't seem to be emerging in quite the way that was planned. Well, more on that and other things besides from our panel shortly, but first to the United States. This past weekend's mass shooting in Monterey, mass shooting rather in Monterey Park near Los Angeles was not America's first or indeed the most recent mass shooting of 2023. Depending on how one measures these things there have been already nearly 40, but it was the worst so far this year, 10 shot dead in a dance hall by an elderly assailant who later killed himself. A short time ago I spoke to Chris Lord, Monocle's US editor who is in Los Angeles. I began by asking Chris what we have learned about the gunman. It's an interesting case, this, Andrew. Hu Cantran, who's 72, has been identified as, as the main suspect here. SWAT teams enclosed in around the van that he had escaped from the scene in, and he was subsequently found dead with a gunshot wound 
presumed self-inflicted inside this van. Now, what we knew, do know about this this man is that he has been a patron of this dance studio that he initially opened fire in, uh, which means that there is some history between him and the people who go here. There have been suggestions from one of his ex-wives that there's some sort of personal grievance between him and these people who ran this per- this studio. And then also we do know that he is an immigrant from China, so he, he wasn't born in America. Um, what the subject of his grievance is is as yet unknown. Uh, but we do know that after he left the initial shooting, he then travelled just a little bit down the road to another dance studio and also tried to open fire with this semi-automatic pistol that he had. It's a really shocking case, Andrew, that has really upset a lot of people in the Asian American community here in Los Angeles, given that this attack happened on the eve of the Lunar New Year or Chinese New Year, as it's been known. I mean, that's a sobering detail there, Chris, that dreadful though this was, it could very easily have been a great deal worse. Yes, potentially. I mean, 10 people are dead here, 10 more are wounded. Um, But I think that after he left that initial studio, he then went to a a second studio, as I mentioned, and the gun was wrestled away from him by two patrons in that studio, to which point then Hu Kantran then then fled and and got in his his van and and drove off. That does show you that, you know, he was intending probably to do another active shooter event right there in that second studio. It could have been much worse. I mean, the police did get there within 20 minutes to to the first location, but I just think extraordinarily close call. This could have been multiple locations that he did open fire. I think everybody here absolutely shocked in a very, you know, in a part of the city that is otherwise a very peaceful place, uh, not a place where a lot of violence is, is part of life there. I mean, it is a sobering and depressing thought, though, that such is uh, America's problem with events of this nature that it does now require a body count in double figures to really attract the attention of the media. Is the usual argument underway off the back of this one? People saying something must be done, other people saying nothing must be done and basically nothing being done. I think to your original point, I think that there's got there's such a such a frequency of these events just in the last six months now that the conversation really... Uh, it's worn itself out to have that conversation because let's look at this situation. This was a semi-automatic pistol that Hu Kantran uh, is believed to have to have used in this attack. Now, the pistol itself is not illegal here in California to hold. The only bit that's illegal is the extended magazine that he used, uh, which essentially holds more bullets. Now, as we know, Andrew, one bullet can kill one person. And yet... The conversation really at the moment is very much about the community that he hit, uh, the, the the timing of this happened, of when this happened on Lunar New Year, rather than the, the the debate around guns. I mean, just to put this in context for you, you know, I mean, last year, I mean, just last year alone, uh, the number of of, of, of op- active or mass shooting events in America, 648 in 2022, only slightly less than 692 in 2021. So these are extraordinary numbers. And yet, really, how much has the debate moved on in those two years of, of, of such high frequency of these kind of, of shootings? I mean, Illinois, just to give you one example outside of California, Illinois in the Midwest just banned essentially assault weapons. That, that law passed it through its house. But actually now a judge has stepped in and said, well, actually, is this constitutional and put a pause on that ban? So we again find that back and forth. Even last year, President Biden's administration tried to implement stricter controls you know, really strict controls, especially on assault weapons. 
And that, again, was it really with what got through the house was a watered-down version of it. There is, it seems to be sometimes one step forward, two steps back, and a bit of a dance around that, really. The, the getting to the core of the problem here, which is the availability of weapons, however this is framed, they, uh, the, given that a 72-year-old man with what we suspect might be a personal grievance against a dance studio feels that he can go and take a weapon in and open fire and kill 10 people with the potential to kill many more is really sobering. But unfortunately, the, the conversation right now is still about, uh, which is a good conversation, an important conversation to have about the community and the, the hurt that's feeling, but not really about those factors and those, that key variable, the accessibility of weapons in this country that would really shift the dial on this. That was Chris Lord speaking to me earlier. Well, let's bring our panel in now, Depot and Rachel, and we will start with the latest diplomatic outreach by Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. For obvious reasons, Lavrov's peregrinations have become somewhat circumscribed these last 11 months or so, but he has found at least one country willing to roll a red carpet in the direction of his aircraft, South Africa. Lavrov received a disconcertingly warm welcome from South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor as the pair looked forward to looming joint drills off South Africa involving the navies of South Africa, Russia and China. Last October, Monocle's Carlotta Ribello spoke to Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba about Russian influence in Africa. African countries are making the same mistake European countries had been making before the war began. They put on equal footing Russia and the USSR, Russia and the rest of Soviet republics. So, yeah, the war, the war in Ukraine that started in 2014 was the first moment when the majority in Europe started actually asked itself a question. Okay, if they're fighting each other, these Russians and Ukrainians, probably they're not the same thing. And we have to look deeper to understand who these people are. It's the same with Africa. In Africa, Russia is USSR. USSR was helping with decolonization. USSR was subsidizing leftist governments across Africa. USSR was doing trade and building infrastructure in these parts of the world. And Russian propaganda works, works there too. So I went there and I said, guys, first, put the Soviet Union aside. Look at this. Ukraine, when we were in the 80s, as member of the United Nations, we held the presidency of the UN General Assembly Committee fighting against apartheid and racial discrimination in Africa. It was not the USSR, it was not Russia, it was us, engineers who came here to build various dams and factories during Soviet times. Many of them were Ukrainians. So you have to make this difference, you have to differentiate. Second, you are speaking how good, uh, how helpful Russia is. Let's take the list of the biggest investors in Africa. Russia, where is it? It's not there. That was Dmitry Koleba, Foreign Minister of Ukraine, speaking to Monocle's Carlotta Ribello last October. You can hear that interview in its entirety uh, in the big interview strand on Monocle 24's website. Well, let's bring our panel in on this. Um, Depot, first of all, Cyril Ramaphosa, President of South Africa, has kept saying that South Africa is neutral where this conflict between Ukraine and Russia is concerned. As South Africa would see it, what, what is the virtue in being neutral? How is South Africa failing to see that there is a a side to be on here? I think for them, it's not so much um, that they can't see that there is a side to be on. I think that what Ramaphosa has said time and time again is that 
if we are going to find peace, then he believes that South Africa is in a position to help negotiate that peace in some way, mm. and that picking sides against Russia wouldn't help with that cause. Whether he is being uh, sensible or he's overreaching, um, you know, certainly you can argue that I, I, I very much doubt that South Africa will be part of that peace process, but they have been fairly consistent in their belief that there is peace to be found somehow through South Africa um, and South Africa can be part of that. I think, you know, to be honest, they don't know how this will end and they're trying to, um, for now, uh, just see uh, whether they can kind of fit in and come out of this on the other side as a African country that was somehow at the forefront of um, of kind of trying to fight for a better uh, negotiation between all parties. But I think that for South Africa to assume that they'd be in that position is, is quite short-sighted uh, to be honest, and I think a lot of their people are quite frustrated by um, the way in which their government have responded to uh, this war. But they have been consistent. They've said that, you know, across this and other uh, conflicts, they they don't want to pick sides in that way. Um, but I think that it's, it's certainly a position that um, in the long term uh, will kind of seem quite short-sighted. Rachel, I was struck by a, a statement by South Africa's foreign minister, um, Naledi Pandor, which, which struck me as odd. Uh, she was talking about these upcoming naval drills between South Africa, Russia and China. And she said this is just a natural set of exercises that occur between countries, almost as if this was some, you know, literally naturally occurring phenomenon that she was powerless to stop. Mm, and as if no one had any control over a calendar or over the date. I mean, the the existence or the planning of these military drills is, is one thing. The planning of them to coincide specifically with the anniversary of Putin invading Ukraine mm. sends a very different message. Tactless at best. I don't, I, I don't think it is tactless. I think it is actually sending a very pointed message when it comes to the exact meaning of neutrality and fence-sitting, the idea that uh, they are prepared to cooperate with Russia in quite an eye-catching public way to a certain extent. I think that's a sort of statement in and of itself. Uh, And I think the the context, sort of to pick up on what Deepa was saying, is, is that they think that there is something to be gained from continued warm perhaps perhaps not as warm as it was but warm relationships with with Russia because of the influence that Russia has had historically because of what's on offer and strikingly because of what isn't on offer from various other countries and and the west and the US uh, it's a it, it, it's a, a tactical piece of maneuvering uh, Depot, uh, we were talking at the top about your book, which does make the point that Africa very much does not think with one mind about absolutely everything. But there, there is a trend, I think it's fair to say, across Africa taking an equivocal view of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. When the, when the UN General Assembly condemned Russia last March, 17 African countries abstained, including South Africa. Eight more didn't turn up. Uh, and one, the admittedly weird case of Eritrea, actually voted with Russia. Um, where is that coming from? Is there an aspect of, as Dimitro Kaleba and others have suggested, of a, a certain hangover from the Cold War when the Soviet Union did uh, encourage and arm and supply and train various liberation movements across the continent? Yeah, I mean, I would add that the majority of African countries did vote uh, to condemn Russia Indeed. in that vote. So um, I, I, would, I wouldn't sort of say that the trend is, you know, pro-Russian or at the very least not able to work out, you know, who is right and who's wrong in this. But I think there certainly is a feeling among many African countries that they were kind of burned during the Cold War, that they were forced to pick sides, that they mm. were sort of 
bartered between um, the US and and the Soviet Union and um, and then everyone sort of made friends and then everyone kind of forgot about the African countries that were forced to pick sides and I think that they you know there's a lot of countries that don't want to go through that again you know they're happy to those who have condemned have sort of condemned and said you know we'll condemn and then we'll go back to our own lives and get on with things and if there is anything that we can you know do to help then we will do so but there are a lot of countries especially the ones that um, abstain from the vote who sort of feel like what's in it for them picking a side and that's not necessarily you know morally the right um, way to look at you know these sort of unfolding crises um, but for them it's, they certainly are looking back to the Cold War and, and saying you know we we picked sides at the time and um, you know we, we are, we're never in the discussions when when peace is made and, and when new negotiations are formed and a lot of African countries to be honest are also enjoying the power that they're getting they're enjoying mm. the fact that Lavrov is coming and, and, and Russia are coming and, and wooing them with promises in the US um, the uh, Treasury Secretary has been to Africa recently. Sec- uh, the Secretary of State Blinken has been um, on a tour of Africa recently. The White House put on um, this incredible sort of festival of a celebration of African countries uh, recently. Um, and 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 Biden promised that you know in uh, what essentially would be his second term, um, there would definitely be more of a focus on the continent. And and African countries are enjoying this, and they have um, a sort of a leverage that they've never had before or at least in the last few decades since independence and I think you're seeing a lot of countries trying to use that leverage. Um, Final thought on this Rachel and on that thought of depots Um, that being the case and South Africa is not the only country uh, Lavrov is visiting on this African tour should the United States and what we might think of Ukraine's other allies be trying to respond to this diplomatic outreach in kind I mean as depot suggested there's an amount of that already going on but should a few extremely high-profile Western leaders be making more of a show of themselves in Africa? I can't see how that would be a bad thing. Uh, And I think the point about lots of African countries feeling ignored or that when when a particular crisis point was over, the other countries turned away, there probably definitely is something in that. The focus of Russia on its sort of charm offensive in Africa, though, is not a a new thing and it's not a thing that's just just been picked up now with with the gap since the the sort of Soviet era. Putin has been working on this for for years. He cancelled I think 20 billion dollars worth of of debt to um Russian debt to mm-hmm. African countries in 2019. Um you've also got the history there of uh African leaders who were trained by the Soviet Union, including uh, two former presidents of of South Africa. There is history there. There are links with infrastructure, with power plants, with weaponry and arms, uh, all of which are filling gaps that the the rest of the world didn't want to fill. And so, you know, it's right to talk about what the moral choice with this issue uh, might be. But from inside a country, if you're looking at your own country, your own your own people, the challenges that they're facing. They're facing inflation and shortages and high fuel costs and all this, many of the similar things that, that we're facing here in, in Europe. It doesn't look as, as clear-cut. It doesn't look as, as obvious. You've got a country that is offering aid and support and trade deals and uh, a whole lot of others who have basically ignored you.
Um, let's look elsewhere in Africa and at one of those countries that did find somewhere else to be when the UN was voting on whether or not countries should help themselves to their neighbours. Burkina Faso has given France one month to instruct its remaining soldiers in the country, believed to be around 400 Special Forces troops, to fold their tents and decamp. Relations between France and Burkina Faso have been deteriorating since the most recent coup d'etat in Burkina Faso, led by Captain Ibrahim Traore, who seems quite keen on being better friends with Russia. This is an unmistakable echo of a broadly similar sequence of events with similar motivations in neighbouring Mali. Um, Depot, first of all, what is Traore doing here? Is he calculating that if he ditches France for Russia, Russia might be less likely than France to whinge at him about whether or not he's planning to hold another election ever? Yeah, I mean, what he's and you know other leaders in the region are realising is that they don't have to make a choice. They can be far more flexible. They can, you know, mm. make a deal for six months with with Russia or and you know maybe move on to China and move on to the US and France. The the leverage is in their hands now, and you know France traditionally haven't given much flexibility to their um, uh, former colonies. Um, you know, say what you want about the British Empire, and you know I famously am not a fan, um, <laughs> but. You know, when the, the, the one reason, somewhat reasonable thing they did is when they left, they left. You know, they, mm. they said, Ryan, you deal with our mess and, you know, we'll, we'll see you we'll see you at some Commonwealth event. You know, you know, they, they really left, whereas France didn't so much leave. You know, they they see their former colonies as sort of extensions of France. Um, and you still have, uh, you know, President Macron and, and his uh, his you know, predecessors, you know, constantly going to these countries and weighing in on local issues. And, and, and you now have reached a point where, you know, many of these countries are saying, you know, again, you know, what's in this for us? You know, you, you keep meddling and, and we're not, um, or we're now getting other countries that are making, you know, new offers to us. And, and they're not actually asking for a huge amount in return. They're not even so far, you know, Russia and China and, um, you know, haven't really asked for, for much in return. You know, they just like the fact that their phone calls are picked up. And, um, and so right now, you know, many of these, um, many of these, these, these leaders in, in these countries uh, have realized that, you know, for them, they don't need to have this sort of, you know, parent figure hovering over them. They can, they can definitely uh, use that leverage to build new relationships in a way that works for them. And, and of course, if you are a recently installed uh, authoritarian, you certainly um, will pick the leader that is less likely to ask you questions about what you are up to and 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 that that certainly just it really just shows kind of more broadly just how much dynamic wise has changed uh, across the region and and just how much power and influence you know individual African countries now have um, you know over the last few decades. Uh, Rachel, to pick up on that point, Depot was making about the British Empire and about how when it left it generally left. Is there any argument in a counter argument in favour uh, of what France has attempted to do over the last decade in West Africa of acknowledging we do have an, a responsibility here, we do have a responsibility and indeed an opportunity to protect? And I remember being in Mali not long after uh, Operation Barkhane began. I was there for other reasons, but. At that early stage, uh, the French intervention did seem quite popular among the people of Bamako because there had been a point at which the jihadists did look poised to actually make an attempt to take the capital. You really can see both sides of it, can't you? Mm. You, you can the 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 legacy of, of colonialism from all kinds of, of, of European countries 
um, has left all kinds of very, very deep scars. And in some cases, the colonial power left and with, with sort of no infrastructure and sort of took all the infrastructure and all the, the leadership with it and things very quickly deteriorated and those countries are still sort of dealing with the aftermath of that. Now, France obviously took a, a, a different route and has, as sort of Deepo said, a very... Uh, a much closer, much more supervisory attitude to its 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 former colonies. I don't think France has had the reckoning over colonialism that Britain belatedly has. I remember the last time we were on this on this program, we were sort of talking about the way that you discuss it, the way that you teach it, the way that you deal with statues and controversial figures and families who made their wealth from all kinds of very dubious means. And we were talking about the fact that those conversations are happening in the UK. They're happening very awkwardly and with a huge amount of political backlash, but they are happening. And I think France is is a few years behind that in that sort of process. Uh, And I mean, really, if you look at it from first principles, you, you why are your troops in that country mm. at all? It's very difficult to make the justification now, even if the the motive is to maintain peace and stability. Just finally on this then, Depot, is is there a role that the French military could or should be playing in the region? There is still clearly an issue with jihadism in West Africa. Um, those 400 French troops are likely to be redeployed to uh, extant complements in Niger and Chad. It's not like the French are leaving Africa entirely. Is there a role they should be playing for for whatever reason, whether it is out of some you know, genuine instinct to help the former colonies, whether it is a, a globally minded attempt to try and lend some amount of security to West Africa? Because certainly the Malian military demonstrated before France intervened that they couldn't contain the insurrection themselves. What, what can or should the French do? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that there is a role that they should play. I think that there's a role that they can play mm. if they are welcomed to play that role and if you know a friend a former colony says you know we don't want your assistance we will deal with this ourselves then you have to respect that and allow them as a sovereign nation to to work through their problems you know there are issues of insecurity and and terrorism in in nigeria you know where me and my family are from um in in the northern parts of the country and you know solving that problem as Nigerians, you you look to the Nigerian government and you say, you know, it's your responsibility. It's not the British government's responsibility. Um, you know, certainly colonialism caused a, a huge amount of uh, chaos and, and instability within the region. And and I think that should a African country, you know, turn to uh, their former colonizer and say, you know, here's a way in which you can help us in fixing that, then, then you can sort of say, oh, you know, you do think that that former colonizer should feel that responsibility to help. But I think that where France sometimes have gotten it wrong is that they've they've sort of forcefully inserted themselves um, into the picture. And I and I think this is, you know, for France, I, I think this is, and I think as uh, Rachel mentioned, it's an opportunity for them to have a far uh, more substantial reckoning with um, their... Uh, with you know colonialism and and, and empire and, and what happened and say yeah you know we can take a step back we can you know have conversations about where we want to go and um, how we want to how we want to build this relationship going into the future and I think it's it's a great opportunity to do that you know you don't necessarily have to just see it as, as, as a defeat in in that sense you can certainly use this as a teachable moment say so, you know we'll take a step back and if we want to have those relationships then we can you know negotiate that but it has to be on the terms of the African countries themselves well let's look now at British politics which to extend 
minor credit we're due to all concerned, we have recently been obliged to do a little less frequently than we had grown used to during the Theresa May calamity, the Boris Johnson circus and whatever that thing with Liz Truss was. Nevertheless, Prime Minister, as of this broadcast, Rishi Sunak, has spent the day not enjoying answering questions about the tax affairs of Conservative Party Chairman Nadim Zahawi, who was also one of a large number of Britons who had a go at being Chancellor in 2022. It has emerged that Mr Zahawi paid a penalty over unpaid income tax while he actually was serving as Chancellor, which, given that he did serve as Chancellor for approximately nine minutes, may have been the only thing he did while in that office. Um, Rachel, just for fun, um, let's contemplate the possibility that this is all entirely above board, that Nadim Zadawi just just forgot uh, to pay tax. We've all done it. we, We have... All done it and all ended up paying a, a £5 million tax bill, um, including uh, the penalty. Um, is it possible that this is all entirely above board? Uh, no. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and the reason that it's not possible is uh, the way this came out and the journalists who started raising questions about Ndim Zahawi's tax affairs years ago, uh, and uh, particularly uh, about a year ago, and the, the the very, very aggressive legal letters that they got sent saying, if you dare ask these questions in public, even perfectly reasonable questions like, hang on, it looks like your shares went to your father and were held in a company in Gibraltar and you wouldn't have paid tax on them. Do you have an explanation for that? Um, I'm, I'm sure that's fine. I'm 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 sure if it, I'm sure it's fine too, but we don't know. What we do know is that that very aggressive legal tactics, what's sort of called lawfare, mm. um, stopping people asking questions, that does suggest that there is something to hide. And again, that the timing of it, that this was all settled while he was chancellor. I mean, imagine the meeting with the HMRC officials going to say, oh, Mr. Zahawi, we think you might have a tax bill. Yes, Mr. Chancellor of the Exchequer. No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll see ourselves out. Um, it really just, it, it, it doesn't look good, and it particularly doesn't look good for Rishi Sunak, who is the, the Prime Minister who promised to bring back integrity and professionalism, to have appointed Zahawi to his cabinet as party chairman after he was made aware that that this was an ongoing issue. Uh, Deepo, all that being the case, even if, uh, just if we think of this from Sunak's perspective in terms of brute politics, even if all this is entirely above board, should Sunak just sack him anyway? Um... I, th- I think it's it's hard to imagine that it is. Like it, it seems just such a uh, tactical it, thought. It seems that, pretty weird, doesn't it? It just seems too mm. weird that you know. If you know, I'm I'm not a fan of of people losing their jobs just for the sake for for political reasons. I think that there's so much of that in politics um, anyway. But um, I I just do. I, I think you know, if anything, it's just the way in which they try to shut down the story that I think is is worth. Um, you know, really investigating and looking into, and you know, because because that shows a real lack of integrity. You know, almost sort of threatening journalists. Um, you know, who are asking questions, and I think you know, if, if anything, that that's worth uh, losing your job for. Because Rachel, as you alluded to at the top of the show, you have a story coming up in the New Statesman talking about you know the the comeback of Tory sleaze um, and Rishi Sunak, who, as you said, 
his whole thing is like I'm I'm competent, I'm transparent, I'm not a complete Yahoo like those who've been running the joint for the last however many years. It's not just this this week. He has himself for the second time in his life been served with a fixed penalty notice by the police, this time for uh, shooting a film of himself sitting in a car without a seatbelt. That's probably not Watergate. Uh, but he also has to contend with uh, Boris Johnson will not go away, however fervently Rishi Sunak clearly wishes he would, with revelations that, and I think I've got all this in the right order, the current chairman of the BBC shortly before Boris Johnson gave him that job stood guarantor to a loan of 800,000 quid to Boris Johnson. Again, I mean, I'm sure it's fine. It doesn't look tremendous, does it? doesn't look tremendous. And the whole, oh, I only introduced him to someone who was his cousin anyway. If he was his cousin, why didn't he be able to introduce himself to him um, but this is this is classic Boris Johnson and in one way it helps Rishi Sunak because it reminds the Conservative Party that is looking at the sort of poll, polling numbers and going well maybe if we brought back Boris all our problems would go away. It reminds them that no the problems would not go away, the problems would keep coming because this man is a liability and however much of this stuff comes out we know that there's more of it to come out uh, but on the other hand Rishi Sunak served in Boris Johnson's cabinet uh, and also has many of, of Boris Johnson's supporters in his own cabinet uh, and is trying as hard as he can to distance his own government from the one that was actually two governments before because we had the Liz Truss interlude, uh, <laughs> as you alluded to. Uh, but it's not, it's not working. The kind of Tory party rebrand, sensible Rishi, isn't working and these scandals keep coming out and they just keep... Uh, drawing a very clear line from Rishi Sunak all the way back to the various Conservative Prime Ministers that have landed the UK in its current crisis. Uh, and he can't get away from it because he doesn't have the political skills to do so. You can tell he hasn't got the political skills to do so because whether we think that not wearing a seatbelt is a serious offence or not, if you're going to film a video of yourself and you're the Prime Minister, you, you wear the damn seatbelt, right? It's, it's, a, it's an unforced error. It's just entirely avoidable. And he doesn't have, Rishi Tunak does not have the political acumen to to know that and to be able to just sense that this is a thing that he probably shouldn't do, probably shouldn't be videoed, literally breaking the law, even if it's a a very minor offence. And so he definitely doesn't have the acumen to sort of dodge these scandals as they come up. Uh, Deepa, going back to what Rachel was saying just then and also at the top of the show, that a big part of the problem that this government has is that it has been the government for just too long. It's it's exhausting. It's out of ideas, it's out of people, and everybody's sick of it. But if we assume that Rishi Sunak does not want to lose the next election, and that may be nearly two years away still, is there a way, should he acquire those political skills, that he can get on top of this? Is this fixable if you are Rishi Sunak? To be honest, I think it's effectively too late. I think the two things that uh, an electorate pretty much anywhere in the world won't forgive a politician for is uh, corruption and hypocrisy. Mm. Um, and the Conservative Party seem to only do scandals about corruption and hypocrisy. Um, you know, most electors will forgive incompetence. You know, people readily elect incompetent people all the time around the world. <laughs> it's pretty much what um, what us as humans, this is just what we do. Um, so we'll, we'll forgive in, incompetence. But when it comes to sort of corruption, and we, we're looking at both sort of Boris Johnson and, and Zahawi now, when you look at hypocrisy, comes to you know wearing a seatbelt or having parties during COVID. I think those are sort these are sort of the things that that people don't forget. And um, you know, and I, I think it, it's probably too late to to push all that side. If the Labour Party allow the electorate to forget, then I think that that is probably one of the most gross um, 
derelictions of political duty that party in the history of the world has ever done. You know, it's, it's, it's fairly easy for them to, to, to present a number of, um, of, of these cases um, to, to the public. But, you know, my, my suspicion is that it's probably too late. And I think, you know, Rishi sort of knows that. And, and you can sort of see in like, there's, there's a sort of a tiredness about him already for a man who, who's barely been in office longer than the shelf life of a lettuce. <laughs> well, so to the heartwarming human interest component of today's programme, as we consider what has apparently become something of a social media craze, people inverting the notion of the bucket list, i.e. that notional roster of experiences one must tick off before one's corporeal allotment expires. Instead, folks are compiling what is called an anti-bucket list of things they cannot be bothered doing, which is irritating right there as there's an obvious better name for that, which does actually rhyme with bucket. Um, So do, do we both have things on our word that rhymes with bucket list like the, we're looking for things that are traditional components of the bucket list but which we as individuals simply cannot see the point of i'm, I'm going to nominate swimming with dolphins I don't, I don't know why people want to do that leave them alone <laughs> oh i think dolphins are quite cute i've got nothing against dolphins why I'm, do you I, hate I, dolphins I, 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 <laughs> just to be clear on this i am pro dolphin I, I just don't understand what the big deal is about you know annoying them while they're trying to do dolphin stuff on top of my list is camping i do not get the point of oh, it you are I you are cold you no, are wet yeah. you you are you don't get any sleep because you're on a very uncomfortable non-sleeping mat uh you can't escape from the people that you're with you're utterly trapped with them i do not get the point i i, I just i just always assume that people who've gone camping have somehow reached adulthood without ever having heard of hotels it, it's it's truly bizarre i just don't get it every, every, like, every, like, the whole time i'm there i'm like why like we've we've evolved past this like what is like what am i trying to prove as an adult that i can sleep outdoors like like i don't want to do that yeah well, I mean, people never people who are lucky enough to have a garden never like sleep in their the garden. gardens this is what happen if you no. just if you go to someone's house and they're like oh we're sleeping in the garden tonight you'd be like no like, that's not fun like, what are you doing what are you talking yeah. about yeah um uh, so other than dolphins swimming with do- I don't know what your views are on swimming with dolphins have you ever have you ever in fact done it I haven't I, I have re- until you mention it I don't think I've thought about it the idea of swimming with dolphins in, in well, years I don't think I I, I, I think it feel like it'll be fine but I feel like I'd forget about it quite quickly <laughs> I don't know why I just think um, um, do, do you have something on your rhymes with bucket list then I've no interest in running a marathon Oh, no, there's another no. one. I've, I've yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely zero interest in. I've watched many a friend run a marathon, and every time it's made me like even more not want to do it. Like I just watch them, and I'm like this looks horrible. It doesn't look fun. It's does just it? this like no matter how great you be, no, it's just <laughs> it's. I'm pro, you know, raising money for good causes, but not pro running for hours. It's just no. I, I, I think I think those are two absolutely excellent nominations for the rhymes with bucket list. Um, a, a a moment of consensus descending <laughs> upon the monocle daily table. Um, Deepo Fellowian and Rachel Cunliffe, thank you both very much for joining much. us. And finally, on today's show, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, exporting a children's television show into that country seems a surprising pursuit for American lawmakers. Yet that is exactly what happened, and television producer Natasha Lance. Rogoff was tasked with making Sesame Street in Russia. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs caught up with Natasha, whose new book, Muppets in Moscow, details her experience. I was first approached by Sesame Workshop, then called the Children's Television Workshop, in 1992 at a 
screening of a documentary film that I had just completed called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And this film, which aired on PBS television, which is our public TV station, it essentially predicted the coup of 1991, which is when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I had been uh, embedding myself with conservative, fascists, communists, anti-capitalists for two years previously uh, who wanted to do anything to avoid the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, after this screening, two executives from Sesame Street came up to me and said, oh, excuse me, we, we really enjoyed watching your film. And do you think you can help us bring the Muppets to Moscow? And of course, I was kind of shocked, you know, because I have no children's television experience. And I asked them and I said, did you just watch this film? You know, because it's very dark and, you know, it's as far as can be from the Muppets. And, you know, I just didn't quite understand, you know, why me? And then they said, well, you know, we've been trying for a couple of years and uh, we have uh, support from the U.S. Congress. So at that point, then Senator Biden had spearheaded congressional support for a Russian version of Sesame Street. But before funding could be released, a Russian partner had to be found. So a Russian broadcaster and Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit company and they had been working with the Russian Ministry of Education. But, you know, they were they were broke. I mean, at this point, uh, most of Soviet television, post-Soviet television for drama and entertainment was dark. The film studios were not producing. There just wasn't state funding for educational programming. And, you know, the prospect of doing this was so exciting. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any experience with children, but I thought, wow, this is a really challenging project. And you know, then when they, the executives explained that um, Sesame Street envisioned the Muppets as ambassadors of, of you know, that, that they could model idealistic values, freedom of expression, tolerance, and provide skills that would help children thrive in this, you know, budding new open society, then I was all in. I thought, this is really, this could have such a tremendous impact, and I want to be part of it. It's an incredible story, and as, as you said there, you kind of looked at it as such a challenge, and I think one thing that does really come across in the book is how many challenges had to be overcome with the production of, of this. I wanted to ask you, the goal of the project is described as finding this middle ground between Western liberal values that Sesame Street was really well known for kind of espousing, and then also fitting in with this post-Soviet culture and the spiritual values and the educational needs of, of children in Russia, as well as post-Soviet states at the time. And maybe you could just talk about the kind of specific challenges of overcoming those cultural differences and how you managed to, to square those in the end. Well, when you say, Sophie, you know, uh, spiritual values, that really captures Russian culture. And 
you know, it was both a very spiritual society, but also a very violent one. And, you know, some of the uh, initial challenges we had to deal with included our first uh, sponsors of the show. Russian sponsor was, you know, blown up in a, uh, a car bombing and he survived what was badly burned. And then our two uh, broadcast partners, uh, one, a great man who was trying to reform the Soviet television and, and create a free press in Russia. He was killed. Uh, somebody uh, killed him after he was leaving the TV station. So, you know, there were already enormous challenges uh, related to the instability of the country politically and the violence. And on top of that, the cultural clashes that you're talking about really pitted, I would say, Sesame Street's progressive values against 300 years of Russian thought. And that entailed, you know, differences in uh, values and ideology around ideas of equality, you know, how much freedom should, should children be having in the TV show? How would you portray independent commerce in the show? I mean, there were, there were multiple clashes that had to do also with the Muppets, the design of the Muppets. That, that almost caused World War III. Finally, Natasha, the show eventually premieres. It has a long and successful run before it's finally stopped under Putin in 2010. In the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia's obviously been in the headlines throughout the past months. How do you look back on this period of time of introducing Sesame Street to Moscow and how do you feel about the impact the show had? You're so right about that, Sophie. The, you know, it's remarkable where we are today and where we were 30 years ago. I was just thinking about how, you know, 30 years ago we were training Russian and Ukrainian artists and uh, puppeteers how to perform puppets at Sesame Street Studios in New York. And today, you know, I just read that Ukrainian fighters are being trained in America how to uh, operate Abrams tanks. So we are in a very different and heartbreaking place. But I also know, I mean, I've been back to Russia several times since making Ulitsa Sazam, and the show became a huge hit, uh, broadcast across the 11 time zones to millions of children on Russia's two largest TV uh, channels. And when I've gone back to uh, Moscow, because I've made films since then, and I meet people who I, I shyly ask them, you know, have you, do you know Ulitsa Sazam? And the reaction has always been, you know, it, just laughter. And, you know, sometimes people start singing the songs from the, from the show and they want to talk about who's their favorite Muppet. And the show had a huge impact uh, on an entire generation of people. Book 
That was Natasha Lance Rogoff in conversation with Sophie Monaghan Coombs. Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia, is out now. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Rachel Cunliffe and Deepo Fallian, also to Chris Lord at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 